Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter. And Dan Krawczyk. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a concept that was created by George Soros, which has uh, really been something that has persevered uh, and has been a big contribution of his to financial thinking, theory of reflexivity, which helps to illustrate how the whole financial investing practice, the whole uh, body of, uh, of that trade, uh, is less mechanical, and to some degree, there's a philosophical element that is involved uh, that's more organic. And so our, today, we're going to kind of talk about how that works and what does it actually mean? What is reflexivity? Sounds great. And this is one of those cases where the uh, brain and the world are always interacting, and it's dynamic, right? It's not as if there's a fixed reality that we're just trying to perceive um, our actions and our thoughts and uh, human behavior impacts the world in unexpected ways. And so it's a constant reverberation of what your particular model of uh, the situation is and then what the world gives you for feedback, plus you can impact that feedback to some degree. So uh, let's take an example. Uh, basically, to frame exactly what reflexivity is, it's basically a situation where the market price of a particular security affects the perception of market participants, which then actually affects the fundamentals of the entity uh, for which the security uh, exists. So uh, a very good example of uh, reflexivity in action would be if you were to think about, for instance, a software company, right? So you have a number of software companies that are uh, producing a particular type of software. They're competing with one another. And then uh, we'll say that one of them uh, ha is favored by analysts and the stock appreciates as a result of that. And it appreciates more than its competitor's stock. Well, when that happens, uh, when you have a market leader in terms of the stock market, then uh, that can become very attractive for engineers to come work there. The reason being, a lot of engineers are compensated based upon uh, they, they get their given options. So the rising stock price or a higher, faster rising stock price, uh, that leads to make a particular competitor more attractive to work at versus another. So the company itself will have the opportunity to pick among a broader selection of engineers because everybody would like to work there because they would like to be able to participate in that appreciation. Assuming that the company is uh, able to sort through those engineers and pick the best ones, then they can have the best engineers to make the best software, which then would actually do better within the marketplace, uh, which then of course would lead to a higher stock price relative to its competitors. And that, of course, would lead to them being able to attract even, you know, the better engineers and create actually a competitive advantage. And then it just goes in reverse as well. Say they make a mistake, they make a misstep 
and that's going to cost them. For instance, like they de they develop something that does not resonate with the market, or they miss a key technology or feature that one of their competitors actually manages to pick up on, and their stock price declines or it underperforms relative to their competitors, then it may be more difficult for that company then to attract the higher quality, uh, more talented software engineers that'll allow them to be more competitive into the future. And therefore, they end up with worse products, and they, as they end up with worse products, the stock price is not appreciated as much or even declines, and uh, that makes them even less attractive. It's very much like life, isn't it? It's, it's sort of, I'm just reminded of, if, if you can find a way to be perceived as capable, more and more opportunities are thrown your way, and therefore you're able to become you know, wiser and you have just, just greater opportunity. And uh, I suppose it works for businesses as well uh, in that same principle. And I'm reminded of branding a lot, that if you get a lot of uh, good press for your brand, you, you then gain more capital and can produce a better product. Yes. So uh, let's, let, let's talk about another example. For instance, uh, we can talk about debt, right? So if you think about a, uh, uh, a company that has a certain amount of indebtedness, their stock price appreciates, uh, and they've had some success operationally, and, and it's become a, a darling in the market. It's a lot more likely that a bank officer is not going to be criticized by his boss to extend more credit to that company. So their financing costs could actually be less. They could have more access to credit which allows them to then capitalize on opportunities for acquisitions, for large capital projects, things of that nature, which then feeds back into the operations of the business itself. It really all has to do with perception, and our perception is limited. That's a really core lesson. We tend to think that we're perceiving all the facts on the ground, when in reality, no one individual can do this. And so positioning within a market has a lot to do with how well you can rise above the noise. And sometimes that's all it takes. And then the details will sort of fill in behind you if you can kind of get out front. And uh, this is one of the challenges that uh, many people have and many companies have is how to present your strengths because you, know, you can be a stronger company, but if you don't market as well or present as well, another person or group can leapfrog your opportunity just because they appear to be more capable at the right time. That's absolutely correct. And we've seen that happen before uh, in a number of instances. Perception, you've heard the term fake it until you make it. Well, the reality is, is that when a company is perceived to have uh, basically the better mousetrap or to be more capable it does lead to more opportunity and it's self-reinforcing. Now, interestingly enough, it can also lead to an extreme. And Soros talked about this as well, where that beneficial feedback loop moves to a, a level where the optimism just far exceeds the ground truth of what's going on with the company. And then you ultimately get some sort of a mean reversion that can occur. And that can then have its own reflexive negative effect on that company. You know, if that perception is stretched so far beyond what the 
reality is. And though, even though it's uh, beneficial to the reality, uh, if it goes really beyond the actual ground truth, then uh, it's very easy for some minor incident to change that perception uh, and readjust, causing the stock price to go down uh, and then having that negative feedback loop go the other way. Gosh, I'm just reminded of the tale of Icarus, just flying a little too close to the sun and outstripping your competence level and the wax wings melt and you're crashing in the ocean. (laughs) And uh, that's another, just a a good practice can be to really focus on fundamentals and less um, sort of glitzy companies just because you always run that risk. There's a fine line between showmanship and you know, overstepping. And if the capabilities just aren't there, you can really get borderline fraud where, you know, there's no amount of goodwill or money or public perception that can make up for a badly managed company. And so, I mean, that's an important feature of this as well. It can be a shooting star for a reason and just good management is important too. Well, it's funny, you know, the best managements, the, the people are, what you always want to do is exceed expectations. So just like, uh, George Bush's team did when uh, he George Bush went up against negotiating with Al Gore, where the team came out and talked about how great of a debater uh, Al Gore was, raising expectations for Al Gore and kind of diminishing the expectations for Bush, gave him a much easier bar to step over. Well, great management teams of companies that continue to deliver, they will always sandbag. They will always put out numbers that they know they can beat. Now, it's always a very big trick where the market gets used to those constantly, uh, those numbers constantly get beaten, and then all of a sudden they meet expectations, and you'll see the stock just explode, you know, like it'll, it'll go down. So even if you manage those expectations, you tap them down a bit, the market will adjust its perception and they'll say, oh, well, you know, they didn't beat by as much, right, over time. So what are some markers you would look for? I mean, it seems like this all could create opportunities if you're able to see an ascendant company um, and perceive it correctly. Are there certain telltale markers that uh, differentiate um, these, these sort of rising stars from the rest? Well, I think there's kind of, there's kind of some things that you can notice and really kind of rules of thumb that can help you in making investment decisions. Like for instance, with respect to technology, I talked about that uh, reflexivity rule. It usually means that the cheaper a tech company is, if something looks really cheap, it has great cash flow relative to its current price, you should probably avoid it, right? Because that means that the stock price is not representative of growth prospects associated with that business. And you probably can't have them benefit from having the best access to the best engineers, right? So there are certain rules of thumb that you can take advantage of. You can also notice that if something is working and there's momentum associated with that, operational momentum, if you can identify the reflexive characteristics of the business where you say, okay, well, the fact that this stock price goes up means what for the operations of this business? Does that mean that they'll be more desirable in the, in the eyes of their customers? Will they be able to have better access to credit, which they need to be able to have to fund acquisitions and capital projects? Will it, Do they pay their people with stock comp? What does that actually mean? Does there, is there actually some sort of uh, fundamental aspect of the business 
that's going to benefit from that reflexivity. So have a narrative that where you can fill in the pieces of why more capital would help them, like in software. That's probably a great example because yes. the talent can be attracted um, simply based on that that price movement. And I, I feel like in the technology world, it's really about investing in ideas because so many startups look equivalent in terms of their mechanics and how they're structured, but some have winning ideas that will take off and others simply don't have that. It's almost a battle of ideas as much as it is the talent to execute the ideas. To some degree. I mean, I will say that a good marketing team can go a long way. You want to have a great software solution, but it's not the whole the whole shebang. But I think as far as reflexivity is concerned, uh, I think we have kind of captured that notion uh, that a rising stock price can actually affect the fundamentals of the business, which then can lead to a rising stock price. A declining stock price can reflect the fundamentals of the bit, which can then lead to yet a lower stock price. And ultimately, we get to an extreme that is uh, where where the market has a self-reinforcing mechanism that uh, takes it too far, and we have some sort of reversion that'll occur afterwards. And we've covered reversion to the mean in other episodes of this podcast. I think that about wraps it up. It's a very uh, important topic to know about, some opportunities that could be found in analyzing reflexivity. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in these topics, be sure to visit the show notes at mentalmodelspodcast.com where you can find more links to the basic brain physiology as well as some of the topics we've talked about today. Uh, Just another reminder, uh, we have a forthcoming book entitled Understanding Behavioral Biases, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, which is all about some of these biases that can undermine your performance and the uh, basis for those within our brains and how it impacts our lives. Catch you next time. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.